few years ago, it's more than a few now, but a number of years ago, I spent most of a year on a long pilgrimage in India. It wasn't the first time I'd gone, but um, I was invited to accompany a friend of mine who is uh, a Buddhist monk, Western-born Englishman, who was the uh, abbot at a monastery in California called Abhayagiri Monastery. For a number of years, he's currently the abbot at the Amravati Monastery in England. Some of you may may have heard of those places. And uh, at that time, he had, I think he had completed 25 years in robes as a monk and had arranged a sabbatical year off from his abbot duties, his teaching duties, and had never been to uh, any of the Buddhist sites in India. And I, I had traveled there a fair bit, and uh, we have had a long association. So uh, he invited me to accompany him. I, I brought a, another friend of mine along to split the year because I, I wasn't able to uh, commit to the entire year. It was actually a bit more than a year's time on the pilgrimage there. And during that time, uh, as is the custom among Theravada Buddhist uh, nuns and monks, they stay during the period of what's called the rains retreat time, the rains period, which is the pretty much the full moon of July to the full moon of October. It's three lunar months, 12 weeks. They determine to stay in one place. They don't wander. And this is a rule that, uh, that they have had since the time of the Buddha. So at that, during that period of time in India, we stayed uh, in a small uh, guest house, a vihara, in Savati, or near the, the ancient town of Savati. It's the, the modern little village there is Sahet Mahet, two small villages. Uh, Savati is a, an ancient town that was uh, the capital of the, of the area. It was quite a, a big city in a certain sense at the time of the Buddha. And it's uh, according to the um, collection of the suttas, the Buddha gave more discourses in that place, spent more rains retreats there than at any other single one place. Uh, I don't remember the number, but he gave a lot of teachings there. So we were, and it's the, the location of the Jetavana Grove, which is a famous uh, park grove area that was donated by one of his, probably his foremost lay disciple, Anatta Pindaka, who uh, said that he, he wanted to buy this from Prince Jetta, who was the prince of that area. And in order to do so, he had to cover the the forest floor with uh, with gold coins, <laughs> probably a bit of an exaggeration, but he laid out a lot of cash for this this place. And uh, there, when you go there, it's a beautiful park now, and there are the ruins of some of the ancient uh, buildings that were the huts and the later a bit of a monastery that uh, were there at the time of the Buddha. So it's a it's a pilgrimage place, uh, not as highly visited as some, but it's quite lovely. And we spent this 12-week period there. And we had a morning ritual where we would get up uh, in the pre-dawn hours before sunrise, before it was even light, and, and walk uh, the, the distance, uh, most of a mile, I would say, to the Jetavana Grove to be there in time for sunrise. And we would sit on the foundation, which was said to be the, where the Buddha where his hut was, 
And there was this ancient, timeless feeling wandering through the fields there. In, in uh, many parts of rural India, it's, it feels like it could be any time in the last long, many centuries, people plowing the fields uh, by uh, ox, ox plow pulled by an ox, uh, and a very, very simple way of living that hasn't changed a whole lot in a long time. There are modern things, of course, but um, it has stayed very... Uh, simple life. And it would feel very, very timeless uh, walking through the fields on the way to the uh, to this grove. And often in the mornings we would hear some chanting in these places that are pilgrimage sites in India. There are what are called viharas, uh, dwelling places for pilgrims. And from all of the Buddhist countries they, they often will have one. So there's a Sri Lankan one and a Thai one and a Burmese one. And, a, and uh, Japanese and Chinese and uh, Tibetan uh, guest houses, in a sense, for pilgrims. And uh, often monks are living there, and they're usually the hosts in these places. And we would hear chanting coming out, and they usually put it over some kind of a PA kind of system, a speaker system, so it would broadcast out. And one of the chants that we heard very often there was uh, the Mahasatipatthana Sutta. I've made res references to the Satipatthana Sutta, very famous and beloved discourse of the Buddha that is really very clear, uh, the most detailed and clear set of meditation instructions in the entire collection of the Pali Canon. So I want to begin this evening by actually playing um, a bit of uh, some chanting of that sutta. It's not the same one I, I heard in India, but it's quite beautiful. This is by a Sri Lankan monk named Venerable Olmalpe Sobita Mahatera. And I think it's just really nice sometimes to hear these teachings in uh, the original language, even though we, most of us, all of us here, probably don't understand it well enough to follow along. They catch a word here or there. And I'll just play a, a few minutes of it, because I find it beautiful and now you can maybe kind of imagine maybe you're you're in some vihara where the Buddha or one of his disciples is giving you a, a discourse. So I'll just play this for a few minutes. Get it going here. Bhagavato Pachasosum Bhagavato 
times I'm just going to let that play for half an hour and we'll call it call it done. <laughs> that was just the uh, first first introductory portion of that. That beautiful teaching. I think as I said uh, earlier the word satipatthana in the satipatthana sutta is usually translated as foundation of mindfulness, sometimes establishment of mindfulness. In the Buddha's description, there's a translation using the word abiding. One abides. And so it has this quality of abiding or dwelling in, in mindful awareness and mindfulness. I'll just read a little bit from the sutta. One abides contemplating the body as a body 
One abides contemplating feelings as feelings. One abides contemplating mind as mind. One abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, having put away desires and discontent for the world. Now, this is a very brief summary of the four foundations or establishments of mindfulness. Speaks about the four and then sort of the qualities that one brings to that contemplation. So this sense of abiding here is, is an interesting choice of words because it, to me, it has the sense of emphasizing the quality of mindful presence, of awareness, of being aware. That there's more emphasis on that than on the particular object of the experience. That this really emphasizes this is the key, this awareness, this quality of mindfulness there. And so, in brief, these, uh, this teaching breaks down everything that we can experience, the entirety of our life, whatever context us, whatever we can know, into four uh, what are called uh, spheres of, of attention, or Tan Jeff, I think uh, I said, uh, calls them frames of reference. And so this teaching, the Buddha is saying, pay attention to what's happening and really know what's going on there in any moment. Very simple. So these four establishments are mindfulness of the body, kaya nupasana in Pali, mindfulness of feeling tone, vedana, which I spoke about uh, quite a bit this morning, mindfulness of mind, citta, nupasana, and mindfulness of uh, what are usually called mind objects, dhammas, dhamma nupasana. So in our practice, although there are times when we might intentionally turn towards one or the other of this, the, the actual, actually what happens is there's a natural flow between them that just happens as we pay attention to what's arising in the moment. So we may anchor with the breath or body, that's kaya, body, paying attention to the body. A thought arises, that's citta. A sensation in the body, we notice that. We may become aware that it has a pleasant or unpleasant feeling tone, that's Vedana. We may notice uh, some factor of mind, like uh, one of the hindrances of, of say, um, restlessness or sleepiness. We become aware of that. That's in the realm of mind objects, dhammas. So these things, uh, there's just a natural flow between them, although there is a, a way that our practice uh, tends to kind of deepen through them at times, and we may highlight one or another at times. So the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, is is very rich field of exploration. And uh, there's the Buddha praised mindfulness of the body. I've been emphasizing that to some extent uh, in terms of anchoring the attention. And he praised it. This is a, I'll read a little bit here from a, a short teaching in the Anguttara Nikaya called the Kayagatasati Vaga. He said, even as one who, who encompasses with his mind the mighty ocean includes thereby all the rivulets that run into the ocean, just so whoever develops and cultivates mindfulness directed to the body includes thereby all the wholesome states that partake of supreme knowledge. And went on to say, one thing, O bhikkhus, if developed and cultivated, leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. 
One thing, O monks, if developed and cultivated, leads to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and liberation. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. And it went on and on, uh, different ways of speaking about uh, the value of this contemplation. So it sounds like it's potentially pretty useful. And so in, in this teaching, in this section of the Satipatthana, Mindfulness of the Body, which I'm speaking about tonight, there, uh, the, the Buddha speaks of all, a number of ways. He goes through uh, an exposition of ways that we, pertain, that we uh, bring mindfulness to the body. And he begins with the breath. Mindfulness of breathing it starts right there. And he discusses it in four ways. Knowing that one is breathing, simply knowing an in-breath, knowing an out-breath. Just that. Knowing if one is breathing in a long breath, breathing out long, breathing in short, breathing out long. So there's uh, slightly more attention to the quality of the breath there. Breathing in, experiencing the whole body, which can be seen in a couple of ways. There's some debate what was meant there. Sometimes it's meaning the beginning, middle, and ending of an in-breath and beginning, middle, ending of an out-breath. Sometimes it's, it's uh, thought of as experiencing the breath within the entire physical body. Either way uh, with that. And uh, calming, using the breath to actually calm the body, calming the bodily formation. Then he speaks about the different postures. And I mentioned, I mentioned this. Uh, he taught sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. So one is mindful in these different postures. Different activities, going forward, returning, looking ahead, looking away, looking behind, flexing and extending the limbs, wearing clothing, carrying things, eating, drinking, tasting, defecating, urinating, standing, sitting, going to sleep, waking up, talking, keeping silent. All these bodily activities are listed. One brings mindfulness to the body in terms of the anatomical parts, and there's this classic practice called the 32 parts of the body where one brings mindfulness to uh, beginning with the hair of the head, hair of the body, uh, nails, teeth, skin, bones, etc., organs, bodily fluids, body broken down into 32 parts and one contemplates these parts of the body. In terms of what are called the elements of earth, air, water, and fire. And there's a simile that's given here of, uh, it's kind of a little bit, I don't know, not so appealing to vegetarians probably, but Buddha used similes that had to do with what was going on in rural life in India. And this was a butcher who was cutting up an animal to make cuts of meat and no longer relates to it, say, as a goat or a sheep, but as, as the rump and the shoulder and the loin and the whatever, these different cuts. So seeing the, the bodily formation in terms of of its essential elemental nature. Uh, seeing, contemplating the body in terms of its nature to decay as a corpse. And at that time, and still a little bit in some places, but at the time there were uh, things called charnel grounds where corpses were, who were of untouchables who wouldn't be cremated or were too poor to afford that. Corpses were taken to a place to decompose. And it used to be a practice among uh, some of the Buddha's disciples to sit in these places and contemplate these decaying corpses. It's a way to 
sort of, you know, say, okay, this is a real thing. This is what happens. I saw someone sent me a, a short uh, video from an online thing like YouTube or something where someone had set up a camera uh, and did a stop action, a speeded up time. Of a, it was an animal in the woods. I think it was a fox or something. And they, they condensed many days or, or weeks perhaps into a few minutes. And it was amazing to watch this thing that looked like an animal at the beginning turn into basically soil there in the forest. Kind of amazing to see. And then finally, he says, I, I, and I mentioned this in the morning, mindfulness is established that's to the extent that one knows there is a body. Just that bare knowing of the, the existence of bodily life. So tonight I want to look at this uh, elemental nature, uh, a section on the four elements, um, which is emphasized a lot in, in uh, some places in the Burmese um, teachings. Often uh, there's a lot of teachings on the four elements, the four great elements. And these can sound kind of, you can kind of sound kind of archaic and almost alchemical, earth, air, fire, water, you know, we don't think in those terms. It sounds kind of outdated. Um, and for, for these, this way of seeing the body to make sense, we have to actually look at our very direct experience rather than trying to make these words fit in our modern view of things, right? The words are not what's important, but what they point to is in terms of our experience of material form. And so these four elements of earth, water, fire, and air, there are certain ways that they manifest in our direct experience, certain characteristics they have, which I'll list here quickly. So the, what's called the earth element has qualities of solidity, the range from hardness to softness, various textures, roughness, smoothness, this earthy solidity, hardness, softness, textures. Water has characteristics of fluidity, flowing, fluidity, and cohesion. It has this cohering, gluing quality. And we can think of this flowing fluidity like water running. When we take a shower, we see that running, or tears, or sweat. In uh, the cohesive thing, we can picture if you take flour or dust, let's say you take, you take flour and you mix milk or water, it coheres into dough, right? If you took the body, the, the water out of a greg, took all the water out of it, you'd have this pile of dry stuff, and the water glues this into a greg, right? It's glued together by the water, and the bodies are some giant percentage, 75, 80% water, right? If you took it all out, you'd have a small pile of dry stuff down there on the ground. And then the air element, or air or wind sometimes it's called, has characteristics of movement, pressure, tension, vibration. Tension, like think of blowing up a balloon and the tension of the air holding that balloon skin, or like the lungs, there's that feeling of tension, pressure, movement of the air. So usually in, in our experience, these they, they usually occur kind of all together, <laughs> or in pairs or combinations. It's, we don't usually experience just one. Although, you know, like if we're sitting, 
hardness may become very, very earth element. Strong, excessive earth element may show up in parts of the body at some point. Or the movement of the air element. Or the, the range, did I say fire? Range of temperature with fire from hot to cold. So even though it's called fire, it's, it has to do with temperature. Feel warmth and coolness, that whole range of there. So in, in our practice, what we're interested in is our direct experience below the level of concept. I've been saying this over and over in different ways. And so if we, in our experience of the body, we can look in a mirror and we see head and torso and arm and hand and all these parts of us. We can hold that image. We can, you can, we can look at each other and see, oh, you have a head and hands and these parts that make you up. We can see those things. But in meditation, in our direct experience, what do we actually find we ex we're able to experience? We'll do a, do a, I'll do a very short guided meditation here now. You can close your eyes or leave them open if you want. It might be a little easier with the eyes closed, but it's not required. So just feel the body sitting very simply. Feeling the body. Bring the attention to the contact of your, your buttocks, your sit bones with your cushion or chair and, and feel feel that contact there. Maybe feeling a pressure, maybe hardness, or some textural quality. Or bring the attention to the mouth and run your tongue over your teeth. Or gently tap the teeth together, that hardness there and roughness or the tongue roughness of the teeth, hardness. You may feel uh, wetness, this quality of, of water in the mouth there. Let the attention come perhaps to the hands touching. You might be aware of uh, some warmth or coolness there, this fire element manifesting or some part of the body where there's a sensation of warmth. Hands touching and warmth is there, or coolness perhaps, on some exposed skin of the body. The attention with the breath, we feel that movement there. Pressure and tension as the abdomen rises, expands, fills up movement in the body from the breath moving, this air element, manifestation of air there. Or we may feel air touching the skin lightly. So you can open your eyes if you wish. The end of that little meditation. So from uh, in, in meditation, we don't actually experience hand or head or torso. We can hold that image, we can hold that concept, but, but you can't experience hand. You can experience coolness, warmth, whatever other sensations there might be there. 
but hand, you, there's no direct experience of that. So it's just this flow of shifting sensations in body, right? You've been paying attention to your bodies a lot over the days. That's what we notice there. All these things. It doesn't mean that we don't have a head and a hand and a feet and all that stuff. We do. <laughs> we use them to do stuff like walk around and eat. But it's not the entire story of what's true or real. You know, we have to take care of these bodies and they're real, but it's not the whole story. And so what's the point? What's the why would why would it be useful to explore the body on this non-conceptual uh, elemental kind of level? What what would be useful in that? One thing is that the realm of concept like hand foot that that doesn't there's no seeing of what's happening in terms of changing nature of things in that. It's just an idea, right? The only change is when we forget it and it goes away in terms of a thought that we're holding. But it doesn't it doesn't connect us with a direct experience of the changing nature of phenomena, which is the the doorway into the the real uh, area of insight that I've been speaking about. These this realm of these elements, like in that short guided meditation, if we look there, it's just constant state of change. Change is all that we'll see there. It's all changing. This flow of sensations. So investigating mindfulness of the body and, and specifically I'm talking about the elemental nature of it, there's a lot of benefits. Mindfulness of the body. The Buddha uh, spoke about mindfulness of the body serving us as a kind of protection. In one teaching he spoke about how if we develop mindfulness of the body, not just in this terms of elements, but in, in different ways, that it protects us against the being invaded by these defilements of mind I spoke about last night, these uh, kilesas of greed, hatred, and delusion, which are often personified as um, a, a deity called Mara. Right? Mara comes and tries to tempt and seduce practitioners away from their their practice in various ways, or to work them over, or assail them in different ways. So he said, this protects us. When he used this simile, he said, in whomever mindfulness immersed in the body is not developed, not pursued, Mara gets in there. Mara gains a foothold. Mara gains entry. And he used an image. Suppose a person were to throw a heavy stone ball into a pile of wet clay. What would happen? Oh, bhikkhus, would that heavy stone ball gain entry into it, would it go into it? Yeah. Every stone ball wet clay would go right in. So he said, if, if there is not mindfulness of the body, Mara gets in the same way as that would. But if mindfulness of the body is well developed, there is no entry. And he, he said it would be like having a ball of, of yarn and throwing it against a hard wooden door or a solid wall. It would just bounce off. It wouldn't be able to go in. He used these so it has this quality of protection. Another useful uh, uh, quality or uh, another useful thing <laughs> in mindfulness of uh, the body in this elemental way is, is that it, it cuts through, it starts to break down our identification with the body as being I, as me, as belonging to me, 
as mine. That's because there's a tendency to claim ownership. Because we start to see that it's just part of nature, right? We see that um, these elements that manifest in our body are the same as elements that manifest in the world, right? So we have, we, we might explore the body in like that guided meditation where we can become aware of temperature, warmth, and coolness, and hardness, and softness, and movement, and tension, and vibration, and cohesion, and these elemental qualities in the body. But this hardness in the world, right? And the air element moving in the world, and warmth from the sun, and coolness from uh, the cool breeze, and it's the same stuff, right? It's manifesting here, it's manifesting there. It's, it's just nature's manifestation. And so it's difficult to lay claim to. It's, we don't tend to identify so much with, with hardness, my hardness, my heat, or my warmth. Claim it. it. It starts to unhook that tendency to own it or identify with it as who we are. We see the body is just part of nature. And that these qualities of the elements are the same internally, externally, in, in our own bodily life, in the world around us. You know, and so often we tend to speak about nature or the environment as something out there, separate from us. We go spend time out in nature. We have this, this attitude, which I think is a very dangerous one and brings a lot of of bad behavior. <laughs> we don't we don't see that we're part of that. That these bodies are just an aspect of we're just a part of the environment, part of the landscape. We come from that. We're supported by it. We will return to it. We're not separate from it. We're a manifestation of it. That we can, if we explore mindfulness of the body and uh, this elemental nature of materiality, we start to see the distinction between mind and matter. Nama rupa in Pali. Nama, mind, mentality, rupa, materiality, bodily form or form, material. We start to see that these are distinct things. And so we have this body, it has form. But it doesn't have knowing. It doesn't have mind. It doesn't know. And the mind knows, but does not have form. The mind doesn't have material form. And so these things coming together in our experience, they come together mind knowing matter, mind knowing body contact in the body. And the mind knows it mentality, knowing materiality. And this is, uh, <clears throat> there's a way that this is one of the very early stages of, of insight. It's called Nama Rupa Parachedanyana, insight into mentality, materiality. Seeing this very directly, not thinking about it, deciding, oh yeah, that's true, but this direct con connecting with that. We see the conditioned nature of things in this exploration, how uh, mind and matter influence and condition one another. So, for example, we can see mind conditioning materiality. For example, if there's anger or shame in the mind, in the heart, 
there's a physical response. There may be uh, heat or pressure that we'll notice in the body. Embarrassment. We, there's uh, heat and ch- the body changes, right? Or anger, we can feel that. Clenching, tightening, different responses. The mind conditions that. When the mind is cooled out or in a place of very deep uh, calm and concentration, the body responds. The metabolic processes can get really slow. The breath can be so, become so fine, it's barely discernible. The heart rate can... I had my heart rate measured in the 20s <laughs> in meditation, 20 beats. That's normal 60, 70. It's real slow. That's like hibernation rate, you know. It, the metabolic processes in the body respond to the, the mind, the quality of the mind in that way. So their mentality is uh, conditioning the body. We can see materiality conditioning the mind. Right? It works the other way too. So if it's, let's say, it's, it's too cold in your room and the mind may react with... with uh, Aversion may arise. Some feeling uh, conditions a lot of thinking. You know, they should fix this. They've got to fix the heat. Something's wrong. Too much hardness and pressure in the bodily life when we're because we sit a long time and there's a lot of hardness. Earth element gets really, really strong, and some reactivity in the mind in response to that, or a strong emotional state. May come. We can see how contact in the body conditions the arising of consciousness, bodily consciousness. See that knowing arising in relation to the contact in the body. Last night I spoke at length about these three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and, and uh, uncontrollability, selflessness. And this is revealed in this exploration too. We start to see, as we sit with the elements of the body, this dance of sensations, that it's in this state of constant change. So impermanence very clearly revealed in that. Nothing in that flow of sensations is staying the same. Even something that feels solid, like a solid, uh, something that we'd say is a big block of pain, if we really pay attention, it's, it's pixelated and changing and getting stronger and weaker and going away and coming back and it changes. We see that we can't grasp any of that. A pleasant sensation, oh great, but then it doesn't last. You can't hold on to it, make it stay, make it be a source of happiness for very long. It's not reliable in that way. And we see that it's just happening out of causes and conditions. It's not amenable to our will. It's not controllable in that way. This coreless, selfless, (coughs) or I should say not self, anatta, quality. We can't say, I'm today, I'm only going to have pleasant feelings in this body. I don't know, maybe one of you can pull that off, but it doesn't work for me. It's guaranteed I'm going to have some unpleasant sensations arise at some point. So it's uncontrollable. So I just encourage you to uh, explore in this way. 
just not making it a big project, but just pay attention and notice. And there's lots of times and, and ways that we can, uh, this may we, this may come, you know, maybe just because of something else that you might notice. So even like in daily activities is a great place to pay attention. So when we're eating, for example, let's say we're chewing lettuce and eating our salad, we'll see how this uh, turns, it becomes quite liquid, right? Lettuce is a lot of water there. We'll see the water element manifesting there in the mouth. Or, and then we'll, we can notice water element when we're taking a shower, right? And the feeling of that flowing. It's the same, same quality internally, externally there. When we're sitting or standing, you know, I've been talking a lot about solidity, hardness, these textural elements. Our clothing may be soft or coarse. Hardness in the body and hardness in the world. If we touch uh, a rock or a piece of wood or uh, walking on the earth, there's hardness there in nature, in this nature, in that nature. Warmth or coolness when the sun uh, outside today, we had a lot of warmth and coolness, right? It was cool and warm. Cool in the shade, warm in the sun. Coolness against the skin, but then the warmth feel that, we feel it internally. Movement, pressure, tension in the body with the breath, and when the breeze moves across the skin, the air element there. So as we contemplate in this way, and, and directly experience this thing, these things for ourselves, it starts to loosen things up in our hearts and minds. We see that these processes are unfolding in our body, these natural processes, and they're happening in the world, same thing. And we start, it, it can start to um, kind of loosen up our tendency to claim ownership of it as somehow being me or mine or who I am. There's a, a famous teacher, I think I mentioned him before, Ajahn Buddhadasa, a famous Thai forest monk who uh, was alive in the last century. I think he died in the 80s. And he once said uh, something that I, I like to quote. I'm not sure it's a direct quote, so I have a disclaimer here. But he once said this, what we are doing with this practice is giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. And I, I love this quotation, because in a sense that's what, that's what we're doing with this practice. We're giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as being our own. So we're coming back into alignment with the nature of we're not getting something we don't already have. We're not getting rid of something that we do have. We're just giving back to nature. We're letting go. This practice is about letting go. Coming back into harmony with this lawful unfolding of things, internally, externally, in our own body, mind, in the world around us. Everything that we can experience in this body, mind, and heart, in the world, is just natural process. 
So that's all we're doing here is exploring nature. That's all we're doing in this practice is just exploring the nature of things. And there's a great relaxation and letting go of a burden when we start to just give it back in this way. So I want to end tonight with a short uh, quotation in a verse that comes from, last night I read some poems from the Terigata. This is from the Teragata. So this is a male elder. Last night were the female elders. And this was from uh, the Buddha's attendant, the Venerable Ananda. This was the Buddha's cousin and his attendant for a long time. His entire teaching career. And he had apparently a photographic memory and Whenever the Buddha gave a discourse, Ananda remembered it word for word. That's And they were preserved in this way for, it was hundreds of years after the Buddha's death before anything was written down. And they, they were chanted like this chant I played. People memorized them and then passed it down for generations in that way. And we owe a lot of it to Ananda. So this was late in his life and the Buddha has passed away. He lived, He outlived the Buddha. And the Buddha outlived his uh, two chief disciples, Sariputta and Mahamogalana, and uh, said that, I can't find this in the suttas, but there's a story that said the Buddha said, when they died, it was as though the light of the sun and the moon had gone out of the sky. This deep feeling of loss uh, with these uh, passing away of his chief disciples. And so this poem is, it's kind of sad and poignant, but, um, but I like it, and it's talks about mindfulness of the, the power of mindfulness of the body so I'll, I'll end this way and this is so this is after the Buddha and a lot of the old gang had died you know Ananda a lot of his his good uh, good old pals are gone and so this is a, an excerpt of a poem that or some verses that apparently he uttered at that time no okay all the directions are obscure. The teachings are not clear to me. With our benevolent friend gone, it seems as if all is darkness. For one whose friend has passed away, one whose teacher is gone for good, there is no friend that can compare with mindfulness of the body. The old ones have all passed away, and I do not fit in with the new. And so today I muse alone, like a bird who has gone to roost. So uh, let's just have a minute of quiet here and uh, let these words drift away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.